please help me welcome back Tom. He's gonna, he's got some words of wisdom for the laity. So Tom Corcoran. Is anyone Myers-Briggs, another Myers-Briggs type? Raise your hand. All right, anyone who's a Myers-Briggs know what, if they're a judger or a perceiver? P? I'm a major perceiver. Um, so much so, I'm trying to decide right now which direction to take. So that's why I say that because we're talking about vision, and I think we'll talk about that for a little bit, which is what we had planned. But I also maybe want to get into a little bit, we'll see if we have time, just talking about lasting in ministry. For whatever reason, when I was praying, we were at prayer, I'm like, you should talk about that. And then, then I heard the word vision, I think she said vision, did I hear that? And I'm like, no, I should do vision. And so whatever reason, um, I've been just playing with what, the last few minutes, I was all prepped to play, talk about vision, but I thought maybe people need to hear about lasting in ministry as well. So let me just talk, we'll talk about vision now, but we might go in in a few minutes to talk about how to last in ministry long term. Um, so just some thoughts on vision. Vision uh, is a picture of what could be and should be but does not yet exist. Uh, vision is a picture of a preferred future. Um, and when it comes to, to vision, that it's essential for us to really make church matter, that Again, we talk about, we know that God is a God of vision. That, that where things are right now is not the way God wants them to be. That there is a better preferred future. And for us, as people of faith, you know, we're all trying to imagine our future. Right? And, and having a clear vision of the future is a, a very important perspective because it, it helps me to understand how I act today. Right? So if I have a vision of myself 10 or 15 pounds lighter, that means, you know, last night when I went home and ate ice cream, I shouldn't have done that because right before bed, I'm not, that's, that's not going to help me get towards my picture. If, if I want to get out of debt, if I have a preferred future to get out of debt or be financially free or be a wealthy person, I'm not going to, you know, take on new credit card debt, right? That if, my, if I understand where I want to be in the future, it helps give me a better perspective on how I should act today in the present. Now, as followers of Christ, though, when it comes to our vision, again, and, and anybody can have any kind of vision for your life. You don't have to be a Christian and have a, a vision for your life. But when it comes to um, vision for, for our lives as, as Christians, it's not entirely up to us, right? We want to get on board God's vision and what God wants. Now, I think when it comes to, to vision... People can hear about this and have a kind of, it sounds kind of ephemeral, it kind of sound like a big leadership kind of issue, like things that people who are, are leaders think about, but either we don't think of ourselves as leader or it seems like, I don't know, kind of lofty for us. Uh, and I think sometimes we think because a vision means we have to have everything sorted out. But again, a vision is just a picture of what could be and should be, but does not yet exist. It's a picture in our mind. Uh, I like what Rick Warren says about vision. He, t he talks about vision being a Polaroid vision. That, you know, I think Polaroids are actually cool again. But for those of you, you know, but Polaroid vision, you know, the Polaroid cameras, remember those things? You would take the picture, right? And when you looked at it, you couldn't quite see anything. It was just kind of a gray mess when it came out. But after a little bit of while, after a little while, the vision would appear. And so what Rick Warren meant by having a Polaroid vision is you just keep staring at the future and you might not have a complete total picture, but if you keep thinking about it, 
eventually it will merge. I think vision is kind of about having um, a kind of general sense of direction of where you're going. You know, it, it, again, it doesn't know all the details. It doesn't know everything. It doesn't know exactly how it's going to work out. But it's like, I know we want to go in that direction. Um, I call this, you know, Rick Warren said Polaroid vision. I call this a Penn State vision. Uh, what do I mean by that? When I was in college, I went to Loyola University in Maryland, as I talked about yesterday. And um, I had really good friends. I grew up in Philadelphia, and a lot of people in Philadelphia go to Penn State University uh, in Happy Valley. It's about four or five hours from, from Baltimore. So um, one, a couple weekends a year, I would go and visit Penn State. And it was such a different experience because, uh, you know, Loyola is about 2,500 people, you know, very small campus, you know, small campus. Penn State, you know, is 30, 40, 50, whatever. You know, it's this huge, huge city, almost a city. Um, and so it would be just a really great experience. I get to go see my high school friends, but um, just to have a totally different, you know, college from a totally different perspective. So anyway, I went and visited my friend Lou, who's best man at my wedding, and um, would later be the best man at my wedding. I went to visit Lou for Penn State at Penn State one weekend, and it was it was a weekend. So on Saturday night, where we're at a party, I'm just like, "Hey, where's a church? Where can I go to church tomorrow?" And Lou grew up Catholic, but he didn't really know <laughs> where the church was, so he had stopped going. But he's like, "Yeah, I think it's down this way." Like, and he just kind of pointed me a direction of where to go. So wouldn't you know it? you know, like 8 a.m., I get up. I mean, that's amazing. College, you got up at 8 a.m., and I just start walking. And I'm like, I'm going to get to Mass. And it just it was important to me. So um, I just start walking, having no idea where I'm going. I have a general direction. But as I'm walking in that direction, uh, after maybe walking about 20, 25 minutes, a woman is getting in the car with her two kids. She's putting babies in the car. And I just say, hey, excuse me, I'm going to and I don't remember what the church was. It was, it was the Catholic church. And she's like, I said, are you, I, you don't have to be going there, are you? And she's like, no, I go to a different church, but I know where it is. I'll give you a ride. Jump in. And so she drives me to church. And I get to Mass that, that Sunday. And, and I just, again, I think a lot of times with vision, again, we don't know all the ins and outs of how we're going to get there. But if we have the clear vision and we start walking in that general direction, God will provide what we need. But until we start walking towards that vision, until we have that clear vision, God can't bring about the resources that are needed. Um, when it comes to vision, people of faith have ridiculous visions. Right? Look at the Bible and the people we're going to talk about one guy today. But, but think about, again, they have incredible visions for the future. And so vision requires some courage. It requires some courage to believe that, that something that does not exist can be. It should be, and it actually can be. It requires incredible courage, incredible faith. I like what G.K. Chesterton says about vision. He says this, The vision is always solid and reliable. The vision is always fact. It's reality that's often a fraud. The vision is always solid and reliable. The vision is always fact. It's reality that's often a fraud. Here's what I think Chesterton meant by that. I think he meant that we live in a world, as Christians, right, again, we understand that this world is a fallen, broken world. As a result of original sin, 
As a result of the fall, we know this world is not as it should be. It's not as God wants it. It's not as God wills it. But that said, we know that we live in the midst of God restoring it. That we know that God, Jesus has come and has, has, has redeemed the world. And it's in the midst of its redemption. It's still, its redemption is still being worked out. And we know that the arc of history is that eventually God is, this is all leading towards God's kingdom. A new heaven and a new earth. That's where the vision is going. So the vision is always solid and reliable. God is building his kingdom. That is where the world is going. Now when we look at the present, that's not always easy to see, is it? You know, the things where we see, the reality, the present around us often seems, it's, he's saying, saying, that's a fraud. That if we look at the brokenness and the fallenness of this world and think about this is just the way things are, we're missing out on the higher realities of God. God is building his kingdom. And, 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 you know, a new heaven, a new earth that we read about in the book of Revelation. There will be no more crying, no more tears. And we have to keep remembering that. Because it's very easy to look at the realities as they are right now. It's very easy to look at a church, maybe look at your parish situation, and think that's the reality of the way things are. And it's always going to be that way. And things are never going to change. And Chesterton says, no, that's a fraud. That's a fraud. It's the cynic who says things are never going to change. No, and, and again, there's some times where we have to re- accept reality that maybe people won't change and accept our circumstances and certain things like that. I'm not saying this is idealistic gas, but what I'm saying is that at times we have to know the reality that God is creating a better future. And as people of faith, when it comes to the visions for our future, see, it's not completely up to us. Right? It's not about what we want. And again, there's some good things like, you know, we want to lose weight and make more money and, you know, have better, better things in, in our lives that are just kind of personal goals. And they're all good, but to be people of faith, it's like, God, where are, your bless- where are you blessing? God, where are you going? Because that's where I want to be. And so we need to be tuned into God for that vision. God is God of vision. Again, we quoted this earlier, Proverbs 29, 18, where there is no vision, people perish, right? Where there is no vision, people perish, right? Where people don't understand where God <coughs> is leading, people perish. You know, look at, think, look at our culture and our society where people don't have a vision, God's vision for their life. Marriages fail, the divorce rate skyrockets because people don't have a vision, God's vision for their marriage, right? Children grow up not knowing God because they don't have a, a vision for, that he wants to be involved in their life. You know, young people, you know, go directionless in life because they don't have God's vision for their life, know where God is leading. And so people perish. Where there is no vision for a brighter, better future, people perish, On the other hand, where there is vision, people thrive. Where there is vision and God's vision, people succeed. People have blessings in their marriage. People have a sense of purpose and direction. You know, we can say from where there is vision, you know, people's hearts are healed through prayer. 
where there is vision, you know, we make an impact in underdeveloped nations, in, in, in Haiti, in Kenya, Nigeria, some of the places our parish is impacting. Kids have access to school lunches. Schools are built. Uh, differences are made in people's lives where there is vision. So it's very important for us as, as parish leaders to, again, be people of vision and imagining the future and what God wants to create. Uh, and to help with, with that, I want to look at a little bit of a passage from the book of Exodus. And we're going to look at the life of Moses. And so um, if you have a Bible app on your phone or if you have a Bible with you, you can open that up. And um, mine's from the RSV. It's the, I use the Catholic media. And so just to remember where Moses is in his life, the story of Moses. Moses grows up in Egypt. He's, he's at a time when, the, 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 as a Hebrew, the Hebrew boys are supposed to be killed, right? They're supposed to be thrown into the Nile River. Um, but Hebrew, uh, the book of Exodus tells us that Moses' mother, seeing that he was a special child, and what mother doesn't think her child is special, but seeing that he's a special child, decides to try to hide him from the Egyptians. And so she puts him in a basket and floats him down the Nile River, right? And then the Pharaoh's daughter takes him out of the water, and that's where Moses' name comes from. Moses means drawn out of water. <clears throat> and so uh, he grows up in the Pharaoh's house. He grows up with a life of privilege. <clears throat> but the whole time, Moses knows that he's a Hebrew, and he sees the affliction of his people, and that bothers him. It bothers him. And it bothers Moses so, so much that one day he is out and about and he sees an Egyptian taskmaster beating a Hebrew slave. And something in Moses snaps. He can't take it anymore. He has what Bill Hybels calls a Popeye moment. That's all I can stand. I can't stand no more. And so Moses snaps and he kills the Egyptian. And then he buries him in the sand. And there's some thought that what Moses had thought would happen maybe is that the Hebrews would raise up, his fellow Hebrews would begin to raise, rise up and all across the land they would begin to kill, to fight back against the Egyptian taskmasters. But that's not what happens. Instead what happens is the next day Moses is out and about again the next day. And he sees a Hebrew beating a fellow Hebrew. And he, and he pulls him off him and says, what are you doing? What are you doing? Isn't it bad enough the Egyptians are oppressing us? You know, we're enslaved to the Egyptians. What are you doing? And rather than saying, oh, right, Moses, you're right. I shouldn't be doing that. The guy says, what are you going to do? Are going to kill me too like you killed the Egyptian taskmaster? And Moses is scared to death. Because now he knows something he thought was hidden is well known. And the Pharaoh might be coming out to get him. And so Moses runs. And he runs to the place of Midian. And there, you know, he, he marries, he, his father-in-law is Jethro, he gets a job as a shepherd, minding his sheep, and from there, he's, li he's just living his life. And, and years and years go by, I think about 40 years go by, and Moses has totally forgotten about this thing on his heart to free the Hebrews, to free his people. He's just going to kind of live his life as he wants to live it. And then one day we're told... Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. 
And an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, was not yet consumed. So he sees this bush, it's on fire, but it's not being consumed. And then Moses said, I will turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burnt. So Moses says, all right, I got to see this. And I think a lot of times, again, that's where vision begins to awaken us. We, we stop and turn aside. We got, we got to draw back from what's going on to what God is doing. That people of vision and people who imagine a better vision for the future, for their parish, for their church, for what God is doing, pay attention to the burning bush. They pay attention to maybe the holy discontent inside. They turn aside to say, okay, God, this bothers me. What do you want me to do about it? Because it's in this turning aside that completely changes Moses' life and why we read about him today. So what's calling you maybe to turn aside? What's got your attention? Where is God... What's the burning bush in your life right now? Because that will give you an insight to the vision of where God is taking your parish and wants you to go. So there's a burning bush. And so God says to Moses, you know, take off your shoes. And then he says this. I have seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. And I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and a whole bunch of other ites, okay? Right, so God says to Moses, Moses, I'm not distant. I hear the cries of my people. I see the pain they're in. I see the suffering. I don't want to leave it like that. I want to take them to a better place. I have a better place in store for them. Now, God sees the pain of our parishes. He sees the sufferings. He knows the things that aren't going well. He wants to take it to a better place. And I think that's the key thing. It's God who's going to do this. You know, the whole story of Exodus, right? It's, it's, the scriptures are making clear this is God who's acting and Moses is his instrument. And, he, and, he, and, and God wants to clarify that over and over again. And the fact that the Israelites lose sight of is sometimes they say, Moses, you delivered us. And Moses is like, no, I didn't deliver you. God delivered you. But God sees the suffering and he wants to take it to a better place, the place flowing with milk and honey. What would that be like? What's the promised land for your parish? Where is the promised land? Where is the land flowing with milk and honey? What would that look like in your parish? That's the vision of where God wants to take you. So, God says this, I got a great, huge plan. And I want to take the people to the land flowing with milk and honey. Take them out of slavery to this awesome and better place. And then God says to Pharaoh, Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring forth my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. Hey, Moses, great news. I want to lead my people out of slavery to a better place. Moses, even better news for you personally. I want to use you. 
Now think about it. Again, with Moses, this is what he wanted. This is why he killed an Egyptian taskmaster. He wanted to free the Hebrew slaves. It was a deep desire on his heart. So of course, God's going to say, I want to use you to accomplish this amazing and incredible thing. And of course, Moses would say, yes, God, I'm in. Can't wait. Let me add him. I will go to the Pharaoh tomorrow. That's what he says, right? No. (laughs) But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? God, I'm a nobody. I don't have any position. I don't have any power. I don't have any authority. I'm not the pastor. I'm not the priest. I'm not the bishop. I'm nobody. You got the wrong guy, God. Right? It's sometimes what we say, right? I'm a nobody. I don't have any power. I'm authority. I'm just a volunteer. I just give my time when I can. No. I don't have the position or authority. But then God says, what does God say to Moses? He says this. But I'll be with you. And this shall be the sign for you. When you have brought forth the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God upon this holy mountain. God says, it doesn't, it's, it's not really about who you are. I know who you are. But first of all, you're mine. I'm calling you. And what it's about to be accomplished isn't about your power, but it's about God's power, my power. You know, I will be with you. But God, when God gives us a vision for what he wants to accomplish in our churches and how he wants us to make a difference, he promises, I will be with you. You're not alone. Now, we feel like that sometimes. We feel alone. But God says, if you're working towards accomplishing the vision that I've put on your heart, if you're working towards the vision that's a holy discontent, I want you to know, I'm with you. I will be with you. Now, again, it's important that we talked about yesterday a little bit with Father, Father Michael. You know, we don't want to be hanging on to things that are broken systems and not, things that God is clearly not blessing and clearly where God doesn't want to go. And we're just hanging on because of some, some uh, you know, unhealthy connection to tradition in the past. And I, again, I believe in tradition, but let's make sure it's a big T tradition and not small traditions of things that used to exist, but God's no longer using and God's no longer blessing. As God says in Isaiah, see, I am doing a new thing. I'm doing something new. Do you perceive it? Right? What's the new thing that God is doing? Because people who are serving God in his generation are perceiving the new thing, the new places God is blessing, and they're not holding on to the things that don't work. But if we go where God is blessing, God says, I'll be with you. So then he said, I'll be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that, again, I've sent you and you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God upon this mountain. This is where you will know, where I'm appearing to you right now, you're going to know the vision was fulfilled when you're praising me and worshiping me with God's people. So that's Moses' first excuse. I'm a nobody. But then he's got a second excuse. We're going to see he's got five excuses. Then God said, Moses said to God, but if I come to the sons of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they seek me, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? So 
part of God's plan was for Moses to go to the leaders, the elders of Israel, and get them on the team. Right? And this is part of a vision. It needs to be a team sport. It needs, you know, we can't just do it on our own. We've got to get others involved. But part of Moses' pushback here to God is that, God, I don't really know you all that well. Like, I'm not that holy. You know, I, I, I don't, you can't use me because I'm not close enough to you. And this is why sometimes people don't serve, right? I don't, I don't know God enough. And even people in your pews, you know, you guys are the committed volunteers and leaders, many of you. But some people in your serve, they think, I don't serve because I don't really know God all that well. But here's what God says to Moses. God said, <coughs> I am who I am. He said, say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. In other words, I am Yahweh. I have always existed and always will exist. So God gives Moses just what he needs to kind of keep moving. (laughs) You know, we come to know God, we don't come to know God and then serve him and serve the vision he has for our churches. We serve the vision for his church and then we come to know him better. Right? Crucial to knowing God is to work alongside him. You know, guys, we, we might maybe understand this a little bit better because, you know, as guys, the way we connect, we, we connect by doing things, right? You know, I don't, I don't sit down with my sons and really talk a lot. You know, I, I asked my son Max, you know, driving, hey, how was school? Good. You know, what was the best part? All of it. None of it. You know, you know I'm like trying a hundred different ways to try to, to try to do that. But if I really want to talk to Max, I got to go do something with him. So, all right. So, <laughs> um, you know, we learn about people when we're acting and working with them, right? Again, some of the best friends you have, again, people work in the church, and you're working alongside each other, and you become friends. You come to know each other because you're working alongside them. The same is true with working with God. If you really want to get to know God better, then be part of his mission, be part of his work, be part of the vision he's building, what he wants. So God says, again, Say to the sons of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and I will be remembered throughout all the generations. <coughs> and then God tells Moses, I promise you, again, he goes back to the vision. All right, I promise you, I will bring you out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites. Again, all those other ites to a land flowing with milk and honey. He says, they will listen to your voice and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt, and they shall go with you to the king of Egypt. All right. So God says, go, I'll be with you, and you'll get to know me better as you work on this. And then it's funny, God paints even more uh, interesting thing in a couple here of verses, skip ahead of verse 19. A couple more things about the vision that's so interesting here. He says, I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. And we know the story. We know the Pharaoh fights him and there's ten plagues. But God promises Moses, hey, I know it's not going to be easy. I know in, in, in bringing this vision to fruition, it's not going to be easy. There's going to be obstacles. So don't be surprised by that. You know, it's like God never calls somebody into a, a vision. God never calls somebody to do work from him. He's like, hey, hey, hey I want you to know about this. It's going to be so easy. Right? God never says, it's going to be so easy, it's going to be easy as pie, I'm going to smooth out every obstacle before you get to it. You know, it, it's, going to, it's going to be a cakewalk. 
Jesus never said to pray. And when you pray, say, God, please make my life comfortable. And please make it easy. Amen. You know, our Father, make my life comfortable and easy. Smooth out all the obstacles before I get to them. You know, you can read it. I haven't found that prayer yet. We want that. Right? We want to pursue God's vision and we want it to be easy too. And God says, no, there'll be obstacles. But listen to this. He says, I know that the king of Egypt will let you go and will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty right hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with the wonders which I will do in it. And then he will let you go. So you'll get to see my power in all these obstacles. Right? You won't, you, you won't see my power until you in, in, uh, encounter the obstacles, until you fight through the obstacles, but you will see my power. He says, I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, listen to this. Listen to the vision God paints for Moses about what's going to happen. He says, and when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman who shall ask of her neighbor and of her who sojourns in her house jewelry of silver and of gold and clothing, and you shall put them on your sons and your daughters, thus you shall despoil the Egyptians. These are people living in slavery. They have nothing. They have no freedom, much less possessions or things. And God says not only is he going to work it out so that the Israelites escape Egypt and move into freedom, he's going to make it so the Egyptians pay them to leave. I mean, Moses might have laughed out loud. Are you kidding me? They're going to pay us to leave? When we're free labor force and we're, we're building all this stuff for them, they're, then they're going to pay us not only to not work anymore for them, but to pay, but to leave and go. That was ridiculous. But again, God's vision for what he wants for us in our parishes and our church is often ridiculous. It doesn't make sense in the moment. It's sometimes laughable. I mean, think about Abraham. When God finally, you know, after all the long journey, I think he's, when he's about 99 years old, and he says to Moses, you're going to have a son through Sarah. And he just starts laughing. He's like, shall a man conceive at 99? Can, can Sarah have a baby? I mean, it's just, it's ridiculous. And so if you have a vision for things and you're like, that's ridiculous, it's never going to happen. You might be right where God wants you. It might be the vision that God's putting on your heart. Because if it's not ridiculous and if it's not something that you couldn't possibly attain without God's power, then it's not God, right? If God gives us a vision, there's something God wants us to accomplish, it's something that we can never do on our own power. And that's where we know we're on the right track. So I said, Moses had five excuses. Here comes the third one. Then Moses answered, but behold, they will not believe me, nor listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. All right, so again, God had said to Moses, Moses, I want you to go to the leaders of Israel. I want you to gather together a team, and that's your team. They're going to help you accomplish this vision. So again, vision's a team sport. So Moses now has his third excuse. He says to God, God, they're not going to believe me that you talk to me. And honestly, I think this is Moses' best excuse, right? You know, it's, it's kind of hard. When, when you say, God, talk to me, it's, it's sometimes hard. We're not, I mean, again, I, I believe in God. And I believe God talks to people. But if you say that God puts something on your heart, I'm still just a little skeptical. How do you know it was God? And I'm going to ask some questions, you know, so this, I think, is Moses' best excuse. But Moses then says to this, 
Moses then says, um, the Lord said to Moses, what is that in your hand? What do you got right now? He says, a rod. And he cast it to the ground. And it says this, so he cast it to the ground and became a serpent, and Moses fled from it. That makes me laugh. <laughs> it's just like, he's got this rod, he throws it down, got a snake. I mean, like, Moses runs away. Like, it's a, <laughs> and then God said, oh, no, Moses, go back and pick it up by the tail. And it becomes a rod. You know, Rick Warren, when he talks about this verse, he says this. He talked about how, um, he, after he wrote Purpose Driven Life, which was uh, in the early 2000s, that he had, um, had all this money and power and influence. And he's like, God, what do I do to it? And God just gave him this verse, like, what's in your hand? And we might not have the, the, the power and influence, the, you know, the money and influence that Rick Warren had after writing Purpose Driven Life, but God always asks us, asks us, what's in your hand? What do you have to use? Again, so often we think about what we don't have. And sometimes people ask questions, well, what do you guys have? How many people coming? And we're like, okay, it's, it, it's helpful, I think, to prove to you the show, okay, fruit has been produced. If, if I'm listening to a speaker, I want to know, have you been successful? Do you know what you're talking about? And, and so I think sometimes numbers or what we have as a church is important to tell you just so you can know, I think we're worth listening to. But at the end of the day, what's in your hand? It's not, you know, not what's in your wallet. What's in your hand? What do you have? And so God tells Moses he wants to use what's in his hand as a sign. You'll use these signs You'll throw the rod down, you can pick it back up, and you'll show the people, elders of Israel, like, hey, that's from God. I couldn't do that on my own. That's a sign. And when it comes to the vision that God has for us and where he's leading us, if we begin going on that path of where we think God's leading us, he'll put signs in our path to know we're going in the right direction. You know, and, and sometimes those can be signs of fruit. Sometimes it's just spiritual uh, we talked about those family-friendly Fridays as a church. And so, again, we've done this over five or six years. And, again, they were, they were just to get people to church, and they were exhausting, and they burn us out. Well, after we began kind of learning from their churches, <coughs> um, we decided we were going to have one final family Friday. But this time, instead of, like, just comforting people, comforting the insiders, we were going to challenge them. And we began painting a vision for them of what God wanted to do to the church. We began painting every member a minister and everybody who had come to these Fridays to come involved and get volunteer ministers, the volunteer ministry. We began painting a vision of, of getting to a small group and being connected to other people in the body of, of believers. And so when we started out that during Lent, we had 600 people coming. And by the end, we grew that down to 200. Because people suddenly realized, oh... This isn't about sitting, having dinner, and listening to a nice talk and going home and just pretending like nothing happened, having an enjoyable evening out. This is about actually doing something. But I remember leaving, and so you would say, okay, that wasn't really great fruit, Tom, so what are you talking about? You know, why was that exhilarating to you? It was exi- this was exhilarating to me, because, or why was that a good fruit? Because it was exhilarating to me, because I would, I would come off of those Friday nights and I'm like, God's in this. I don't understand where it's going. I don't understand it completely, but I can feel the Spirit of God moving when this happens. We're going somewhere different. And so God will give us signs to help us know we're heading in the right direction. So, 
God says to Moses, what's in your hand? Cast to the ground. So Moses says this, and then he gives him a couple other signs. He says, you know, put your hand in your pocket, and he pulls it out, and it's leprous. He puts it back in, and and he pulls it back out. It's clean. A couple other signs. And so he said, look, use those signs, and you'll get the people on board. You'll get the leaders of Israel on board. So then Moses has his fourth excuse. So number one was, you know, I'm nobody. Number two was, I'm not holy enough. Number three was, no one's going to believe me. And here's number four. He says, but God said, but Moses said to the Lord, oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent either heretofore or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and tongue. God, you're asking me to go talk to Pharaoh, but I stutter. I don't speak well. I'm not talented enough. Again, that's why we push back sometimes on what God wants us to accomplish and wants us to do. I'm not talented enough. I don't have the skill. I don't have the ability. But God will take what skills and abilities we use and he'll compensate for the ones we don't have if we have a a team. That's why God says to Moses, God said, well, who has made men's mouth, who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and again, I will be with you. I will be your mouth and teach you what you shall say. God says, no, I will, I will help you. I know that's not your strength. And I really do think God usually uses our strengths and the vision he wants us to accomplish, but eventually we come up against our weaknesses. He says, now go for it. Now go therefore and I will, sorry. Now go therefore and I will teach, I will te- be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. Moses, guys, one more excuse. And this is the excuse, excuse I think is the most common excuse when we ask people to get involved and volunteer and probably the most common excuse that, um, again, we have for God. Here's, here it is. But Moses said, oh, my Lord, send, I pray, some other person. God, get someone else to do it. I'm out of excuses. I, I, I don't have any more excuses. You said you'd be with me. You said you'd give me signs. You said that, you know, I will see your strength and your power, but, okay, God, I just don't want to do it. Send someone else. <laughs> Send someone else. And it's interesting, not sure why this is struggling right now. Um, and it's interesting, this is how God, this is what the next verse says. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. <laughs> God has been patient enough, and now he's just ticked off. And he says, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well, and behold, he's coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. So God says, all right, I'm going to send the other people to help you, but Moses, go. I'm tired of talking to you, all right? It's like with your kids. Go because I said so. And that's the end of the conversation. Moses actually never says yes. He never says, okay, God, I accept this. He, he never does. God gets ticked off of him, and the next thing we know, though, he's doing what God told him to do. You know, it's, it's like the parable Jesus tells, you know, of the two sons. The first son, you know, his father says, go out into the field and work. The first son says yes, but doesn't do it. The second son says no, but goes and do it, does it. Who's obedient? The one who went and did it. And that's Moses, because he never says yes. He just, next thing we know, he's going to the leaders of Israel, And he's going to the Pharaoh, and the rest, as they say, is history. You know the rest of the story. So, again, what's the ridiculous vision? 
that if you were to look at reality and look where things are now, you would say, that's not even possible. I don't even know how that happens. What's the vision God has put on your heart? I'm going to give you a few, a few things, and then I, I want you to turn and talk to somebody about that question. But let me just give some thoughts on, on what we saw, like what was inspired us to go to Saddleback Church and what helped, that inspired our vision as a church. And we began to see we wanted to be a place, a, envision a church where unchurched people were comfortable attending. Imagine that for your parish. Imagine a place that people would come into and even if they did, were far from God or didn't have a relationship with God, but because of the welcoming and the hospitality, they want to be a part of the church. You know, imagine, you know, for some of you, and I've heard some conversations, you know, people, you know, you're, you're burnt out because you're the volunteer and you do everything, or you're a staff person and you do everything. Imagine where there were, you know, dozens or hundreds of people involved in the work of the church. Imagine what that would be like. You know, imagine, you know, people, the people committed to giving sacrificially their time, their energy, their talents, their abilities. What would that look like? So I, I want you to pause now and just turn to someone and say, what is the vision, maybe as I'm speaking, that is kind of on your heart, you want to see God accomplish? Right, what is the vision God has for your church? Take a few moments and talk up and put that into expression. And if you have images in your mind, ex- explain those images. What do you see? All right, any, uh, we'll take some time now, either if you have questions or, hey, what are you seeing? What are you envisioning? What's God placing on your heart that you want to speak it out? One thing, one thing here, and hopefully this is a safe place, um, Andy Stanley talks about vision. His vision is, in the beginning is often fragile. You know, talk about that ridiculous part that, that Moses said. So, you know, in some ways, we got to be, we got to guard our visions and be careful about them in the sense that sometimes we can tell them to the wrong people and they can crush them, Right? Uh, so let me just give that warning, but hopefully this is a safe place. And what are, what are, what are you envisioning? What, what's God put on your heart? So, or if yeah, anyone has questions, we can go there too. Go ahead. And do you, want, do you want to use the microphone? We have the microphones. I'm sorry, I should have pointed that out. What I envision is people coming to Mass on the weekends because they want to be there and not out of a sense of obligation. Yeah, that's, good. that's a good one. So people are there, drawn there. They're not going through the motions at church, a vibrant church that is responding, vitality. Is there any, you walked away from the microphone. Is there any, do you want to say it to me? I can say it. Any kind of vision? Is there a picture in your head of that anyway? Like a, a person smiling or anything like that? <laughs> so her thing was okay so her, her thing was saying her vision would be the different body language of people in church basically not, not being like droopy during the readings or but like smiling and listening and engaged other south of Rapid City there is no parish I belong to the mothership to the mother church the cathedral and what do we see Okay, you've told us in Greek that parish is the neighbor buildings. To the east, there's the Catholic middle school and high school, and beyond that, 
is the Robbinsdale neighborhoods, and many of those houses are rentals. So the, trans, the population is highly mobile and highly transient. Lakota, Hispanic, and who knows. Any day, any day, two-thirds of the cathedral parking lot is filled with hospital employee parking lot. Have we tapped into or have we thought about tapping in to all the medical, doctor's offices, hospitals, rehab, surgical centers, and then you go down Fifth Street and there's West Hills Village and all of the various senior living things. So I don't have, I just saying these are thinking outside the box because what box? I'm a special ed teacher. Uh, who are the people in our neighborhood? We, there are lots of people, there are a lot of diverse people. My vision would say, let's see the transients, the medical community, the elderly, who many be lonely and need to have community because they don't have any family left. And I just say, oh, and the special thing is God's special people. How can we be of support to encourage our children and our families with special needs adults to be part of our community and not just be part of our community, but be ministers as servers, musicians, and whatever. This is just, this is just, it's, it's like a Polaroid. And I did used to do those in my classroom. It's fuzzy, but there's a lot there. And there's no parish south in Rapid City until you get to Hermosa, 15 miles away. Okay, good. You know, it's helpful sometimes, too, with that, who is that person, you know, that you're looking at? You've had a, mentioned a couple different people with, I think, special needs and things like that, too. And that, that person who's, um, you know, imagining even this, that person and the experience you want them to have, it's a way to, to clarify vision. Any other thoughts on visions people are imagining? I have a ridiculous picture, <laughs> but it is a picture. Uh, it came into my mind. Uh, what the picture is, thanks, Bob. Um, what the picture is, is I see people kneeling in prayer. Not because the kneeler had to be put down because it was that time of mass. They are choosing to fall to their knees because the wind the inspiration is coming to them, and they want to pray. They don't feel a duty to. They know they are in love, and they have the desire to. Um, that's, the, that's the vision. That's the picture. Um, and uh, the wind of the Holy Spirit is inspiration. They inspire it. They breathe it in. And so... Uh, my challenge is, okay, how do I make the wind blow? <laughs> My vision is for the hundreds of people who aren't here. All of those people that sit in our, in our pews week after week who maybe would become more alive if they were more active in the parish but maybe don't know how or aren't ones that are confident enough to respond to an announcement in the bulletin 
but would certainly respond to an invitation and maybe start, maybe there are people in our pews that are catechists, that are musicians, that are lectors, that are liturgists, that are all kinds of hospitality, all kinds of things that are sitting there but maybe don't have the confidence to respond to a bulletin announcement or to come forth thinking maybe they don't have the gifts or talents and are being untapped and maybe would become more alive in their faith if we could somehow get them involved in our parish and, and make them realize that they do have the gifts and talents. They just haven't been asked to use them before. So a vision of people, yeah, using their gifts, their talents, hundreds or dozens, of, dozens or hundreds of people using the abilities for God. Right, because everybody has some gift. Right. And in the organizational gifts, I mean, my, I have a zero on organization. I have no skill there whatsoever. <laughs> but there are lots of people out there that do that could find ways to use that in our parishes where we need them. That I just think that's our biggest untapped is those people that would love to be involved but just don't know how to do it. Uh, my vision um, is for um, that all our diocese, you know, our, bish our bishop is trying to transform our diocese, like he says, into a, not a diocese, mission diocese, but a diocese with a vision, with a mission. And being from another country, my vision is that I wish someday we can all, you know, embrace and build uh, bridges of communication, uh, culturally awareness of other cultures, so we can all, um, our Hispanic community specifically is growing rapidly, not only in the U.S., but in our diocese as well, and uh, we need to, I wish that our parishes, each parish who has Hispanic or other culture, be more open to, to see them and to reach out to them, bring them the resources, and, uh, that, that, so they can be part as well. Yes, we are in the church, but somehow if we not reach out to them, whether in the, uh, with, in the liturgy or in programs in their own language, we, using, we fall into the danger of being used in the same church, but segregated. Right. So the vision is to build uh, programs, and, and, and not only in the liturgy, but programs, multicultural programs that brings us together as one body in Christ. Otherwise, we're running into that. So that's my vision, that each parish should reach out to the Hispanics or Filipinos or Polish people in their own, in their own language, with even greeting them, little things, but it build the communication, uh, erase that barrier of communication. Resources are there. We just need to have the heart and to reach out to them and see them as our brothers, not as strangers. And music is one of them but also other programs, cultural competence, not only for the priests, but also for the diocesan personnel, and for all of us who, who volunteer and serve in somehow in a ministry, be sensitive to other cultures. So part of that too is probably a unity to bring people together and worship. And so again, what, for you, Maria, just what's that image? What does that look like? Picture that. What does that look like when that's fulfilled? I'm just asking the question, not to answer it right now, but just something to, to mull upon. A vision that uh, church and all the practices are the most important thing to ranchers and farmers, no matter the season. 
I'm seeing these men putting down their tools and their work and leading their family to the source and summit of their faith, as well as teaching their family about a personal relationship with Christ. That's awesome. Thanks, Tom. So you even have probably some guys you're thinking of, like, I would love it if these guys were leading their kids. Well, you were talking about vision being fragile and having to guard it, and um, I've had this vision for a long time, and I don't act on it because it terrifies me. (laughs) Um, I just feel like I I was at a church uh, in a suburb of Chicago, and when we moved there, I walked into the church office, and I said, I just moved to the area, and I'm a music minister in my past life, <laughs> and I can play for funerals, weddings, whatever you need. So they started calling me, and then after a while, um, the young man who was the music director there had AIDS, and he passed away, and I took over his job. And then when we moved out here, um, kind of the same thing happened. Like, we found a place to live, then we found a church, and I went in the office and I said, I play funerals and weddings if you need anybody to fill in for anything. And pretty soon I had a job that didn't exist. A job was created. And from there, um, Father Mark was at our parish at that time. Um, On Wednesday nights, we started having religious ed. It was something new. But he said, he brought me and he said, I want to have, I want to have a band I want to have a praise band, something different that we had never done. And so we did that on Wednesday nights. And then it changed over to Sunday nights. And I feel like, I look at our church and I feel like the water, this is my feeling, so I'm scared to say it, but I feel like the water is kind of stagnant. Like, I, I, I go in there and I want to mix it up, but I'm scared of that because we have an enormous number of young families coming in. And Sunday morning is packed. And I just feel like we need to engage those children. But I'm scared because I have other obligations and familial stuff that I'm afraid to make a commitment because I'm afraid I can't hold to it solidly, like you were saying. And, but I, I feel really strongly that we need to stir it up and we need to engage those, those families, those young kids. Sure. And it's music to me, so... I just see it all the time, and I, I'm afraid to so step vision, into the water. <laughs> is the vision somewhat impacting young children or children through music? Is that the sort yes. of? Yes, yes. Starting really a music program with the children involved specifically, and um, I just think it would make an enormous difference in where we're at. Because we, I, I, that's the other thing, too. I don't see a lot of youth involved in the liturgy in general. And we talk about that all the time, but nothing changes because kids are so busy. And so I don't know if it's we're afraid to ask them, if we don't know how to do that. I don't know what it is, but that's just me. So you feel a little so. like Moses, God, go get somebody else to do it. And maybe you just <laughs> got to feel God's anger. No, you go do it. I told you so. <laughs> I don't know if that's what God's saying to you, but I'm just, I'm just throwing that out there. My vision is um, that we who work for the diocese, the parishes, the schools, and those that volunteer will learn to let go and let God. And um, 
by that I mean that we learn to set aside our personal agendas and let the Holy Spirit work through us um, using our gifts and our talents so that we would be collaborative and working together with a common vision. And um, I think that would, it, I envision that that would involve a lot of prayer and openness to what, is, what God's calling us to do. Good. You get me? Okay. I think Maria, Maria Allen's going uh, just, again, I, I want to close with that quote from um, Chesterton. The vision's always solid and reliable. Uh, the vision is always fact. It's reality that's often a fraud. That if it's God's vision and what God's want, that's the true reality. And again, we have to constantly search our hearts and souls. Is this really where God is blessing what God wants? But if it is what God wants, he will bring it into fruition.